Good evening. It's just after 6 o'clock here at WFMU. And you were listening to too much information. My name is Benjamin Walker. And today on the program, we are talking about Hollywood and Hitler. That's the title of a new book by Thomas Doherty, who is our guest today for the whole hour. You know, the evil Nazi has been a staple villain for Hollywood films for decades now. Tarantino even trotted them back out a few years ago in 2009 for Inglorious Bastards. But you might be surprised to learn that it was not until 1939 when Hollywood releases its first full-throttle anti-Nazi production, Confessions of a Nazi Spy. Thomas Doherty's book starts out in 1933 and documents the story of how Hollywood gets there. So, let's see if I have the technology working. Hey, Thomas, are you there? Hello, Thomas? Let's see. Hey, Thomas, are you there? Hello? Hello, Thomas, are you there? All right, let's have some technical difficulties here. One second. Thomas, are you there? I am here. <laughs> that was all my fault. Oh, well, that's yep. always good to know. It was completely 100% my fault. I apologize for that. Welcome to WFMU. Uh, happy to be here. All right, so Thomas Doherty is the, ar- is the uh, author of Hollywood and Hitler. Now, you point out time and time again in this uh, wonderful book that in 1933, Hollywood was extremely cautious about mixing politics and the movies, mostly because it saw its audience as global and what might work out for the American customer might be offensive, say, to one in Germany. In fact, this is how you begin the story. Can you tell us about what happened in uh, Germany in 1930 when the movie All Quiet on the Western Front opened up in Berlin? Well, it's one of these perfect set pieces is the kind of thing that you sort of would think like a dramatist would write. Uh, The famous anti-war film, uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, from uh, the most famous novel on the planet by... uh, uh, the uh, German author uh, Eric Maria Remarque, uh, an, in- an international bestseller and really the first true international blockbuster, is made into a, a movie that's quite faithful to the anti-war ethos of the original uh, by uh, Universal Pictures, uh, directed by Lewis Milestone, and it's an international hit. It's, a, it's basically, in 1930, the first must-see sound film of the new sound era. And it's Not just in America, right? Not just in America, all over the world? Yeah, it's, uh, it's released all over the world. Uh, but in Germany, in December of 1930, uh, it's released in Berlin. And uh, because this is basically a pro-German story, and indeed, uh, you know, when you think of it, uh, you know, like 12 years before, the, the British and the French and the Americans are fighting the German, the bestial Hun, 
But by uh, 1930, uh, most of the world has learned that the, uh, the great enemy of, in World War I was not the Germans, but war itself. And it's, a, and it's a film about, you know, the great war machine, and it's an anti-militarist film. And uh, Carl Emley, universal uh, president and a founder of the company, was quite proud of this film, uh, which was overseen by his son, Carl Emley, Jr. And it's released in Germany in December of 1930. And the, this nascent political movement, uh, the National Socialist, uh, used the it early as, days. as a way to uh, cower the... Uh, Sort of the tottering Weimar Republic, and at the uh, uh, the screening uh, the second night, uh, led by Joseph Goebbels himself, a group of brown shirts infiltrate into the audience. They release uh, white mice into the crowd, stink bombs, uh, disrupt the screening. They stand up and they uh, yell "Judenfilm," you know, Jewish film, uh, and uh, say that this film is a slur on the uh, the great soul of the German people. And uh, Lemley and Universal are quite shocked by this because, of course, they see it as a, a film that's uh, not uh, so, not anti-German in any means, but just anti-war. And the long and short of it is that the uh, the Weimar government uh, capitulates to the Nazi uh, demands and uh, bans the film after it had been cleared. It had gone through a quite extensive censorship process, both in America and in uh, in Germany, so to make sure that the film sort of met the basic standards of decency and sort of a political balance. Uh, but the uh, the Nazis don't see it uh, that way. And it's really the kind of the first time, now, not only that uh, does Nazism register on the radar back in Hollywood, but that the Nazis know that they can sort of cower the, the craven Weimar government with uh, mob violence mm. and street violence. You know, you, this is, okay, one of the, the first time that this happens, and as, you know, we're going to hear uh, throughout over the next nine years, there's a lot yeah. of issues that Hollywood moguls are dealing with Germany, especially, you know, from t to 36. But it seems to me that, like, from the get-go, there's sort of a, a, a disconnect here. It's, yeah. you know, as you said, the film is not anti-German, and yet the Nazis, you know, make this literal stink <laughs> with uh, stink bombs and, and outcries. But this kind of is a pattern that goes on. Then the demands, the, the requests are never really rational. Oh, no. And uh, the Nazis don't really uh, care about the film itself so much as they're using it as a, as a wedge issue to uh, uh, further their own power and to apply pressure to the Weimar government, which will then capitulate. And uh, after that, of course, the Nazis know that uh, mob violence is going to be one of the ways that they can gain power. And I think it's interesting that the first time this sort of registers, both in Berlin and in Hollywood, is around a movie, around All Quiet on the Western Front. And the, uh, it's allowed the, the Nazis to kind of redefine the Great War as this stab-in-the-back scenario, and then also redefine Hollywood itself as sort of this... Uh, Jewish agency that's uh, promulgating anti-German ideology. Yeah. And uh, so they, they succeed in those two goals as early as 1930. Yeah. You know, we hear a lot, especially right now, that the DVD market is, is dried up, that the foreign box office is, is absolutely crucial to Hollywood. I mean, we see this all the time with films. Um, you know, they say Superman got rebooted because it just didn't make enough money overseas, actually, which is so bizarre. But can you talk about in the 30s what the foreign box, what Hollywood's relationship was with foreign customers? 
Well, uh, it, it actually is uh, more crucial today than it was in the 1930s, although in the 30s it was uh, very important, too. Anywhere from 35 to 40 percent of uh, box office revenues uh, were accrued from uh, European, South American, and other, and other markets. And Hollywood was always very conscious of marketing their films to a specific market. And in these days, uh, it wasn't the day of the auteur and the autonomous artist where uh, you know, a film was thought of as this inviolable sacred, sacred object directed by Steven Spielberg or Martin Scorsese, that it was a product that uh, Hollywood figured it can tailor to uh, the individual needs, you know, cut off a little here, add a little there. And so if the, if the film went to Britain and the British had certain objections, Hollywood have, would have no problem at all in slicing the film to British specifications. And of course, they start doing this in the 1930s to German specifications uh, as well, most notably, of course, by eliminating any, any Jewish content from uh, Hollywood films, that if uh, your film has sort of discernibly Jewish content, like if it's the Coens and the Kellys go to Africa or something, there's no way it's going to get into uh, Nazi Germany. And if it has recognizably Jewish directors or producers or actors, sometimes those uh, credits would actually be excised from the, uh, from the print before it could play in Germany. Yeah, you talk a, a, you paint a picture that's a little proactive, though. In other words, like, okay, so the, the Brits don't like this, so let, let's try to make a movie that doesn't do that. I mean, uh, I would compare this to today in China. I read that um, Brad Pitt's new movie, the uh, World War Z, apparently in the original cut, the zombie virus starts in China, but the China authorities were just not into that, and they're like, there's no way this movie is coming out unless that gets changed. So it got changed. So it's very, you know, much a sort of kowtowing to uh, the demands of uh, the Chinese, you know. Oh, oh is that, that true? Because yeah. I saw the film in Bangkok, and as I recall, the, uh, the, the zombie virus started in Taiwan, which would actually be, be interesting. <laughs> oh, I, man, that's I, I amazing. I too, but I can't recall where the virus started. But, of course, the thing about the plague is it always starts somewhere else. Yes, of course. Flu, but right? I, I, flu. I, I bring uh, that comparison up because I'm wondering, like, what kinds of concessions were the Hollywood studios willing to make? Like, you, you mentioned, like, okay, you could take out some credits of some Jewish actors. That doesn't sound too difficult. But what kinds of demands were, uh, you know, Especially when the Nazis came to power, what were they? What kind of demands were they making of Hollywood? Well, they they, uh, they did it in two ways. There was a German council in Los Angeles, a guy named George Geisling, who was uh, you know very alert to any potential anti-Nazi content in Hollywood films in the 1930s, and he knew exactly where to go if he got wind of a potentially uh, troublesome project from his point of view and that is to the Production Code Administration office run by this uh, stern uh, Irish Catholic named Joseph, uh, Joseph I. Breen. And uh, the minute he'd read something in the trades, for example, about a, a potential film like Confessions of a Nazi Spy, which is, you know, finally was released in 1939, he'd send a letter to Breen you know, warning him that if this film is made, you'll offend the German market. And the problem for the individual studios was that if, say, Warner Brothers uh, made a film that the, the Nazis didn't like, the Germans would uh, uh, censor all yeah. films or forbid all films coming in to the German market, or they would threaten to do so. Yeah, that, so that's what's happening uh, now with even China if as well. the individual studio wanted to go ahead, the motion picture producers and distributors of America, the kind of umbrella organization, had reason to discourage that because the other four major studios would have their films banned even though they hadn't been an offending studio. Mm -hmm. So there was a real financial disincentive to make 
uh, explicitly anti-Nazi movies, and so we don't get one until 1939 from a major Hollywood studio, Warner Brothers. Yeah. So when Hitler comes to power, uh, uh, hundreds of Jews and other enemies of Nazism are, are removed from the German film industry, and many of these uh, directors and actors and actresses end up working in the U.S. Can you talk about what kind of stories they brought with them and what they had to or lessons they had to offer about what Nazi plans were for films, both their own and those that they would let into to Germany. Well, of course, that's one of the great sort of uh, uh, unintended consequences of Nazism is when uh, the Nazis go into uh, the, the major studios, and especially UFO, which was really the crown jewel of the uh, uh, the, uh, the German studio system uh, uh, from the 1920s on, uh, they go in immediately and purge uh, the German film industry of uh, some of its uh, most creative talent, of course, the directors, producers, and a- actors and actresses of, uh, of, of Jewish origin. And many of these people end up going to Hollywood as refugees, and uh, as com- especially as composers and cinematographers, I think, they bring a tone that's a kind of darker and off-kilter, and this is really going to blossom in the post-war era with the the film noirs yeah. of uh, of the late 1940s. This sort of sense that you're you're always going to be pursued, and that somebody's always going to come up to you and ask for your identity papers. And uh, I, I find that's more in the tone than in the content of the Hollywood films. That there's there's just this sort of creepy feel to them. And even if at the end of a, a Hollywood uh, film influenced by the refugees in the 30s or 40s, you have that kind of production code ending, where uh, you know the, the uh, Fred McMurray is uh, is shot at the end. And and he's going to have, uh, you know, uh, and justice will be done at the end of Double Indemnity. Uh, there's something about the tone of these films that's more, that's darker and, and more faded than you see in the, the, the main run of westerns and musicals in Hollywood cinema. Yeah. Uh, I guess Billy Wilder is probably one of the most famous of, uh, of these characters who comes into, uh, into the American film industry and brings his own sort of you know edgy, off-kilter look. Sure, sure. I guess what I'm asking, or, or what confuses me, is that in the 30s itself, when some of these stars are showing up, a little rattled, you know? Yes, they oh, were yeah. pursued. They were, you know, they kind of had an inside view of what, you know, I could imagine them sitting down with studio bosses, kind of saying, like, this is, these thugs, you don't, you can't work with them. It's only going to end badly. I mean, is were the studio bosses wearing blinders? I mean, why wasn't there a sense of just like, all right, let's pack up shop? Well, I, I think we, when we look back at the 30s, and this is one of the things I wanted to do in the, in, in the book, Benjamin, is to sort of not have this ex post facto post-war vision on it, that to try to take the 30s as people saw them at the time, from 33 progressively into 1939. And you always have to remember that for the studio moguls and for, and for you know, anybody working in Hollywood, the, the Germans they knew in the 1920s were competitors, to be sure, but they were basically sane, rational filmmakers. You know, that, that's who, who they were in the 1920s. Yeah. And then suddenly in 1933, they go pathological. The Germans go crazy. And, uh, with uh, with anti-Semitism and militarism, and it really takes a period of years for it to kind of dawn on people that uh, they're they're serious about this, that this isn't just a passing spasm. And if you read some of the uh, the memos or the trade press accounts from the the uh, 33, 34, 35, especially, it, it's quite poignant to see these guys trying to grapple with the fact that the you know what's going on in Germany? Are, are, are they really like serious about all all this stuff? 
and uh, they keep thinking that it's a spasm that's going to end. That really, uh, that Hitler will moderate. That uh, eventually the sane, rational Germans are going to sit down and start doing business with us. Mm. And of course, they never really do. But isn't that you tell a story about uh, a Warner Brothers employee named Kaufman, a Jew who you know kind of gets ri- physically rattled? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, uh, this is a, f- a famous uh, a story that was really sort of hard to track down because Jack Warner sort of mistells it in his memoir uh, published in the nineteen. 19- 1960s, the head of the Berlin office, Warner Brothers Berlin office uh, in uh, Germany in 1933, is actually physically attacked by brown shirts and roughed up. And of course, he, he leaves and Warner uh, shuts down his office. And, and the, the fellow dies about six months later. And it's really not sure whether the beating had something to do with it or, you know, he had, had some long-term, long-term illness. But Jack Warner, to the end of his life, believed that you know, this man was killed by brown shirt thugs in a back alley in in Berlin, and Warner uh, traces his own anti-Nazi fervor to uh, to that particular incident. And out of all the studios, Warner Brothers is the one that's really ahead of the curve in wearing its uh, Jewishness and its anti-Nazi ideology on its sleeve, it, especially in private, that a lot of this couldn't get into the movies until around 37, 38, 39. Yeah, yeah. So you're listening to Too Much Information. If you just uh, tuned in, our guest today is Thomas Doherty, who is the author of Hollywood and Hitler, 1933 to 1939. Uh, Now, we just talked a lot about uh, how the studios were, the difficulties they faced from sort of German censors, German uh, insane Nazi officials. But I want to talk about what was going on here in America? You just uh, mentioned one of the censors here, the Breen Office. Yeah. But it seems to me that there's just so many. We have the the Breen Office, foreign embassies, local censors, foreign agents like this guy George Giesling ensconced in Hollywood, studio bosses who want Hollywood to stay away from politics. But if there is a hierarchy, it seems it's safe to say that the Breen Office was top of the hill. Oh, yeah. Uh, this guy, Joseph Breen, uh, probably had final cut over more movies than anybody in American history. He ran the Production Code Administration, which was Hollywood's self-censorship agency from uh, 1934 is when it starts, and it officially goes out of business in 1967-68. Uh, Breen is in office for 20 years, basically, from 34 to 54, which coincides exactly with the, you know, the great golden age of Hollywood. And to get your film released in an American theater, you had to abide by the production code as read and interpreted by Joe Breen. And he would look at scripts before the film, before the camera started rolling. He would make notations or people on his staff would. And then the staff would sit down and look at the final print. And then they would check it off. They would give it a production code seal. And if you uh, are a fan of Turner Classic Movies or American Movie Classics, the next time you're watching a film from this era, somewhere on the title credits, usually in the lower right-hand corner, uh, you'll see a little oval, and it says approved by the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America. It's actually a production co- It's a seal based on the uh, Catholic imprimata that the Vatican would give uh, books that they, they thought were uh, pure enough for good Catholics uh, to wow. read. And that was the model. And for 20 years, this model uh, uh, was a good business uh, for everybody, but it meant that your film had to clear uh, Joe Breen's office. And one of the commandments of the production code was that uh, all nations and all races had to be treated 
unfairly. And that came to be read basically is that you couldn't criticize any foreign government that was friendly to the United States. Well, well you so know, it meant that anti-Nazi films were almost prescribed by the production code. Yeah, but um, you know, I, I think that for for anyone who who is you know loves old movies, and here in New York we have so many uh, venues like Film Forum that screen you know pre-code films regularly, yeah. and it's so much fun. It seems that the code has always been about racy material. You know, it, it's been a crackdown on sexual jokes yeah. or or racy material. I mean, to to you know, and for you in your book, you're talking mostly about political issues, which really seemed like not the priority for the code, or or was it? Well, it was one of the priorities, and and indeed, the you know, I love those pre-code films too, and they, and like you say, they they have this racy sexuality that you don't see after 1934. But the thing about the production code that was so effective and made the ideology of classical Hollywood so monolithic uh, wasn't the easy stuff like. Uh, you know, of a flash of nudity or an obscene word or explicit violence, but the sense of what they called the moral universe of the production code, which was a deeply Roman Catholic vision that, uh, you know, the, the guilty are punished, the virtuous are rewarded, and the, and the authority of church and state is upheld. So it doesn't mean that all Hollywood movies have to end happily. It does mean all Hollywood movies have to end morally. So if you think of a film like Casablanca or It Happened or uh, uh, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, those films actually have you know, a really stern message, which is you have to do your duty, that your personal happiness is in what's important in life. The, the problems of three little people in this world ain't worth a hill of beans, as Rick famously tells Ilsa at the end of Casablanca. And that's what the code was really about. That was sort of the superstructure of uh, classical Hollywood cinema. And part of that was this sense of having a non-political world, or at least a, an overtly non-ideological world. And that was in tune with the Hollywood ethos. Uh, Sam Goldwyn famously said, if, if you want to send a message, use Western Union. And that Hollywood had kind of this inbred antipathy to message pictures, including anti-Nazi message pictures. Sure, but this sense of like not uh, uh, offending a foreign government, I mean, that just, that just seems so anti-American. I mean, I, th I think you talk a lot about this time, about how there were so many inquiries into, you know, foreign influence in Hollywood. And, you know, it just seems like, like this guy you referenced early, George Giesling, you know, yeah. this German official ensconced in Hollywood. How the hell does he have this influence and, and how does he use it? Well, well, we're speaking from a 21st uh, century perspective. In the 1930s, movies had absolutely no First Amendment rights. They didn't get First Amendment rights until 1952 by the Supreme Court in a case involving a, an Italian import called The Miracle. So anybody could censor a Hollywood film, uh, you know, that, uh, whether it was the production code, the in-house agency. Uh, there were uh, anywhere from eight to ten states that had censorship boards, municipalities. If the sheriff's wife didn't like a movie, you know, the sheriff could go down and close it down. I mean, I mean, it, it, it really was a different time in terms of what we think of as uh, freedom of expression for, uh, you know, the great art of the cinema. So censorship was just a part of doing business uh, for Hollywood, just the, the same way that you paid for the, the development of the prints of the lab. You sort of had to negotiate the censor hoops. And one of the reasons the production code was put into uh, effect by Hollywood itself was to avoid all this multiplicity of different agencies. And you can go to one agency, Joe Breen, and when he cleared it, you were okay. And it's better than dealing with you know, 100 different cities around America.
Yeah. You know, it, it, we're, we're going to hear in a bit when we get to 39, but, it, you know, there's a sense of the Warner Brothers linking together pro-Americanism and yeah. anti-Nazism. Is it just that this early, the there wasn't that link? In yeah. Other, yeah. yeah I, I think so. I think people in, you know, in from like the early 19th, from 33 to 37, uh, plus the fact that it's not like America didn't have its own problems with something called the Great Depression, right? Yeah. That that there's this uh, uh, sense we don't know what the Nazis are yet, and and to us that seems incredible because the Nazis are so vivid in our imagination. But that vividness comes from the Second World War. It comes from the Holocaust uh, or the the concentration camp footage uh, from 1945, and from all the historical and uh, filmic excavation that's been done since 1945 that's, that's made the Nazis this universal emblem of evil. Uh, but in the 30s, I mean, there's a lot of competition for, uh, for evil in the 1930s. I mean, the Japanese are killing more people in China than Hitler's killing in Germany in the 1930s. Stalin is certainly killing more people. And uh, that, that, that vividness that uh, is just so you know, powerful in our minds yeah. in the 1930s People didn't have that vivid sense quite yet. No, no, you, you talk about this. You're just l- documenting some of the films, documentaries have been made over the decades, you know, when new footage turns up. Yeah. Um, yeah. But let's talk about some of these newsreels, this other Hollywood production. Um, what did these look like in the 30s? Um, yeah. and, and you know, Benjamin, that's actually one of the more, I think, interesting parts of, of this story, because when we think of movies from the 30s or 40s, we tend to be thinking of the great feature films that are you know, on cable all the time and that we see at the film forum and, and other places. And we see a lot of newsreel imagery on from documentaries or on the History Channel or whatever. But I was surprised when I went back and sort of traced the history of the newsreels and, and, uh, from, from 33 to 39 and tried to find out exactly what people saw then in the newsreels and how they responded to it, really how little footage of the Nazis and Hitler uh, there was before the motion picture screen in the 1930s. Uh, and this stuff is very alive in our memory today, but yeah, most yeah. of the stuff was captured during World War II or uh, discovered afterwards. Uh, the newsreels really had a, a difficult journalistic problem, and we always <laughs> have to remember, of course, these are the days when not everybody had a, a camera in their smartphone, that uh, Joseph Goebbels and the Reichs Ministry, the, uh, uh, the Ministry of Propaganda arm in charge of film, uh, had total control over any footage that was shot in Germany. Yeah, so you used, if you were you, a newsreel cameraman, you had to, you know, get your permission from the Nazis. They'd have to clear the footage, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So nothing came out of Germany that wasn't approved by the Nazis. Yeah. This put the newsreels in a real dilemma, which is either you show Nazi-approved footage, or you ignore the you know, most explosive story. Sure. Uh, on on the European continent in the 1930s. Uh, you so, use this great phrase. You call it Nazi Ganda. Yeah, Nazi Ganda is what uh, the, the trade papers uh, dub this this footage, which sometimes is shown kind of unfiltered, uh, kind of as the as the cost of doing business for especially Fox Movie Tone, which had a, a newsreel branch in Germany and, and Paramount as well. And there were a few uh, kind of iconic images that did get out. Uh, with Nazi approval, 
or before the Nazis really sort of could, you know, clamp down on some of the newsreel footages. And uh, I bet as I speak these newsreels, the, the images will flash in your mind because they, they're shown recurrently both in the 1930s and today as kind of metaphors for the rise of Nazism. And uh, one is the, uh, on the April 1st, 1933 boycott of uh, Jewish businesses where you see these you know, famous shots of brown shirts on mm-hmm. trucks being riding through uh, Berlin and the, you know, the, the, the anti-Semitic signage on the, uh, on the shop windows. And then the, uh, uh, the May 1933 uh, book burning which uh, is really, in some ways, this oh, classic yeah. metonymy for what the Nazis are doing, which is you know, incinerating knowledge, and it also foreshadows the conflagration to come, where you see the brown shirts tossing you know, the classics of world literature <laughs> to this great bonfire. And someone got fired for that one. So, someone, yeah, got in trouble for, someone got in trouble for letting that one out. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Uh, well, it was no. Actually, the, that Goebbels thought it was like big news. They had the cameras there. They, they, you know, it was announced in advance, and uh, they, they, they hadn't really gotten the sort of the media manipulation down. That they didn't know that this stuff would, would wouldn't play in other places quite as the as well as it played in, in Germany. But that, those images are recurrent. But some of the other images that are in our minds, we uh, weren't as widely seen. And uh, images of Hitler, for example, weren't widely seen in the newsreels in the 1930s because exhibitors didn't want to disturb people uh, during a you know, nice yeah. night out for the evenings. And sometimes the image of Hitler on the newsreel screen would inspire uh, fights in the audience because the anti-Hitler people would yell and then the pro-Hitler people would say, hi, Hitler, and then they get into a fight. And no exhibitor uh, wants that. So uh, th- there was really very sparse footage, relatively speaking, uh, in the 1930s. Until 38. 38 is really the, uh, uh, the kind of the pivot year where you start seeing America turn with attention to Nazi Germany. But when does the, the there's a newsreel that's very important in your story uh, that's called The March of Time. Yeah. Yeah. Is that 36? Yeah, the March of Time was a screen magazine, a monthly uh, that is inaugurated in 1934. And uh, where the newsreels tended to be very conservative and not really wanting to offend people, and they didn't have an aggressive sense of screen journalism at the beginning, uh, the March of Time, uh, you know, f- uh, which was a branch of Time magazine, had a much more aggressive ethos, and they weren't afraid to uh, tackle controversy. So right from the beginning, they start covering Hitler, and then in January of 1938, they release a 20-minute uh, screen magazine uh, called uh, Inside Nazi Germany, which is really one of the first unvarnished looks that Americans have at uh, you know, behind the scenes of uh, yeah. Europe. You, you, you quote uh, a German official who let this happen and saying, if Hitler sees this, I'll be ruined. But you know what? I, I have a clip from this. Uh, I want to play uh, a, a few seconds of this. Let's see if this works. In regimenting German thought, all radio programs emanate from the Department of Propaganda. Every newspaper prints only what the state wants its people to read. And any letter in the German mails is subject to censorship. For in Nazi Germany, every instrument that forms thought, communicates ideas, must be used to glorify the Nazi super state and its demigod, Adolf Hitler. So that's ending, of course, with a postcard stand of, uh, of Hitler uh, uh, postcards. But that's a clip from a, uh, the March of Time inside Nazi Germany in 1936. So yeah, and, and the, old, 
older of your listeners might recognize the uh, narrator there as a Westbrook Van Voorhees, who had this you know classic Voice of God narration style, which uh, most film buffs would know probably from the opening News on the March satire in Citizen Kane, yeah. which uh, and the Mercury Players uh, uh, sort of mimic that perfectly of uh, you know that stentorian bombast. But uh, to the credit of the March of Time, that's a, that's a, it's a really fascinating little clip, which I believe you can get on YouTube these days. And, and at the end of it, they basically predict the Second World War. They say that the history of military power in, in, you know, throughout history has always been, you know, that it will eventually erupt into a war. And, of course, this is January 38, yeah. and uh, they're already predicting that. So today on Too Much Information, we're talking with Thomas Doherty, who's the author of the book Hollywood and Hitler. Um, we're just talking about the March of Time and the newsreels, um, which, when it uh, came out, uh, really upset the German authorities. But you you document that it's all, it also angered some staunch anti-Nazis here in the U.S. as well. The Warner Warner Brothers hated this film. What? Were, yeah. What? What? Why? That really surprised me too, because if you look at it today, it it seems just profoundly anti-Nazi, unequivocally anti-Nazi. But the thinking was, and from a great, and this is why always viewing these films through the eyes of the people who actually saw them is so instructive. Uh, the thinking at the time was, well, you're showing sort of a peaceful, prosperous Germany with, you know, has these great athletic programs for German youth and everything looks clean and prosperous. That in the, for, you know, from the vantage of the Great Depression, well, maybe you can make the civil rights trade-off. You know? mm-hmm. And so Warner Brothers actually thought that uh, the visuals were more important than the narration. And that what, you know, a good part of what people are seeing is, you know, a peaceful, prosperous Germany. Now, this is undercut totally by other images and by the narration, but that's what Warner Brothers and actually some other critics uh, thought about this, uh, uh, this screen magazine. Yeah. Well, uh, besides the critics, what about the other uh, censors from the Breen office down to the sheriff's wife and the, the, the local boards? Like, how, how, did, how did they take on uh, Well, this? the Breen office, interestingly, did not censor newsreels or the March of Time. It didn't have authority over those. And uh, so the, the, uh, because it was sort of screen journalism, it kind of had a little more latitude now, it, it actually seldom used that greater freedom because, you know, the ethos of the time was conservative and exhibitors didn't want controversy in their theaters. But the Breen office wasn't censoring this stuff. Uh, so the, the, when the Inside Nazi Germany comes out in 38, some, some censors try to go after it, but there was a, a kind of a, a sense in America that screen journalism should be protected with uh, a little more rigor than Hollywood movies, which, of course, just had sex and violence in them. So the, the newsreels kind of could get away with that if they were gutsy enough, but uh, they seldom were. They yeah. called it self-regulation or self-censorship. Yeah. So as things got worse in Germany, what w- was happening in Hollywood? You talk about this amazing co- uh, connection that I, uh, when the German filmmaker Lenny Riefenstahl comes yeah. to America, it's right at the moment of Kristallnacht. Yeah, that's just another sort of amazing story. Is uh, Riefenstahl, who Riefenstahl. Uh, in, in some ways, uh, you know, she Frank Capra talks about being terrified when he saw Triumph of the Will because he realized, you know, this woman is really good with propaganda. And you could kind of write off most of the people working for Goebbels as hacks, but Lenny Riefenstahl was a genius of the cinema, and anybody who looked at her movies sort of knew that. And she comes to America in 1938 uh, to sell her uh, epic film of the 1936 Berlin Olympics, Olympia. 
You say she was carrying to... around the, the giant film rolls. Is that, is that really right. true? Yeah. <laughs> she was you know, strong enough? Like anywhere from three to three and a half hours long, <laughs> depending upon what version she's uh, got in the can at the time. And Riefenstahl is sort of this glamorous, attractive figure. And the press treats her like that uh, initially. She's this splashy redhead, and, of course, among all these you know, overweight and sinister Nazis, she's, you know, she's good copy. And she comes to America in uh, November 5th. She lands in New York, uh, 1938. And the press is sort of treating her like this interesting celeb, a little kind of racy and edgy, because she's allegedly got this romantic relationship with, uh, with Hitler. And uh, on November 9th and 10th, of course, that's uh, the, uh, the pogrom known as Kristallnacht uh, breaks out in Germany. And they ask Riefenstahl about it, and she says, oh, the Nazis would never do any such thing. And you can just feel the press turn on her. You, you can sort of feel America with Kristallnacht turning away from any sense of neutrality with the Nazis. That's, uh, of course, America does not want to enter the war. We're still sens- you know, isolationist and, sen- and sentiment, sentiment. But we are now, I think, firmly anti-Nazi. And Riefenstahl crosses the country as a pariah, and then she comes into Hollywood, where the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League is just waiting for her and nobody's going to meet with this woman yeah she's basically isolated for the 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 few weeks that she spends in germany nobody's going to see her and she kind of gets ridden out of town uh, on a rail and uh but uh, i I think that's such an interesting moment it's it's the moment where you can sort of see america turn uh in 38 because we've led up in in 1938 you've had the anschluss the uh, the invasion of austria in march You've had the invasion of Czechoslovakia after the Munich Pact on September 30th, and then in November 38, you have Kristallnacht. And it's at that moment, too, that Warner Brothers announces that it's going to produce uh, the first explicitly anti-Nazi film, Confessions of a Nazi Spy. Yeah, but but hold on. I've been dying to ask you this, though, because, you know, for, for your narrative, to this point we've been talking about the power of images and the power of Hollywood. You uh, also... I learned that there was, there is no footage of Crystal Knox. In fact, you say there was one amateur yeah. uh, movie maker out there who was swiftly taken into custody and had yeah. his film confiscated. So I'm really curious, like, why you know you you're really being strong there by saying this is the moment when things shift. And sure, I, 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 that sounds right. But what about the power of image, imagery from from Crystal Knox? Well, you're, you're, you're quite right. There uh, are, are, I think there's some amateur footage of a synagogue burning, in, not in Berlin, in some other German town. It, it did not come alive in motion picture imagery. It came mm-hmm. alive through the newspapers, which covered it like a blanket, and radio. Not live radio transmission. Uh, uh, there's, uh, they, they didn't. Uh, uh, CBS wasn't able to get any f- uh, uh, broadcast out, nor nor NBC. Uh, but the, uh, uh, the there were radio bullets bulletins on this, and the president speaks out against it. Herbert Hoover speaks out against it. Dewey sp- uh, speaks out against it. Elf uh, uh, Landon, yeah, that all the major politicians speak out against it, and that's in the newsreels. But you, you know, you're quite right, Benjamin. There's no sort of dramatic images of Crystal Knock that uh, stay alive in our minds. So, so this is the moment, as you just said, the, the movie uh, Confessions of a Nazi Spy gets announced. So I have a couple of clips on the WFMU TMI playlist for today. I put the, uh, there's a clip from March of Time, and there's, a, there's the trailer for uh, the uh, Life of Emile Zola yeah, film. Yeah that uh, maybe we can talk about in a bit. But there's also, I have a clip from the uh, Confessions of a Nazi Spy. Let's just play a tiny bit of this real quick. The FBI has never done any counter-espionage work. 
Well, somebody's got to do it, and I can't. The whole staff of the United States Military Intelligence Service in the New York area consists of myself and one assistant. I don't suppose the government thinks the intelligence service is very necessary in peacetime. Oh. Uh, looks like it just shut off there. Anyways, that's on there, and, and the volume's a little low. But it yeah. seems that, you know, going very counter to that statement you made earlier about if you want to send a message, use Western Union. Yeah, well, Warner's was, the, it was sort of the only studio that uh, uh, sort of consistently disobeyed that periodically. So uh, Warner Brothers made a film, Black Legion, in 1937, about uh, you know, domestic fascism, The Life of Emil Zolar. Uh, which is clearly an anti-Nazi allegory built around uh, Zoller's heroic defense of Alfred Dreyfus, the unjustly accused uh, military officer, you know, anti-Jewish uh, uh, officer is uh, basically an anti-Semitic uh, motive uh, there uh, by the French. And, uh, and even films like uh, Boys Town, the, uh, which uh, has this ecumenical uh, group of boys, yeah. including a Jewish kid who you know, are free to worship uh, in, uh, in Boys Town, uh, films. Uh, one, one of my favorites is The Adventures of Robin Hood, which uh, I had seen before, but I never really looked at it with sort of this 1938 uh, rise of Nazism eyes. And if you look at that film, uh, it's not about the Sherwood Forest. It's really about democratic aspirations standing up to uh, totalitarianism. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's it's quite you know, uh, explicit when you look at it through those uh, those eyes, and then Confessions of a Nazi Spy, which is really a, a shot across the bow. Yeah, you you quote Groucho Marx as calling the Warner Brothers have, being the only guys, the only studio with guts. What yeah. does this mean? Like, why why did it take guts to make this movie? Uh, because it was the first time that uh, a major studio defied the dominant ethos of the time, which is to lay low. Come on, politics are you know for the editorial page of your local paper. People go to the movies to be entertained, and that with what Warner's does is takes this stand uh, and be, and uh, they've basically been doing it since '33 behind the scenes by donating money to anti-Nazi causes. But increasingly, as the '30s move on, they start wearing this anti-Nazism on their sleeve, and especially with a series of short films which uh, are not too well remembered now. But in 38, 39, they, they released 20-minute you know, Technicolor shorts about the American pageant, about the Declaration of Independence, the Gettysburg Address, uh, you know, these you know, you know, great patriotic themes. But all of them, I think, are really easily read as uh, uh, anti-Nazi allegories because they speak for religious and ethnic tolerance, democratic aspiration, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the terror of tyranny. And, uh, you know, Warner's, as Groucho said, really is sort of the only studio with any guts. That's one of Groucho Marx's a few recorded straight lines, I believe. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, when you, when you say um, that you had to go back and sort of see Robin Hood differently, did, did, do you think people saw it this way at the time? Uh, maybe not Robin Hood, but like, uh, something like Emil Zoller, certainly so. Something like Confessions of a Nazi Spy, obviously. Juarez, which is the Paul Muni film about the Mexican revolutionary. Uh, people read that clearly at the time. You know, have these you have these Aryan colonialists who are oppressing the swarthy Mexicans, and you know, the Mexicans uh. rise up and rebel against their 
quickly overseers and it's you know it, it's pretty connect the dots uh, Sh- sure can you quickly like lay out the plot of that film uh, for this first Juarez? no 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 sorry the the confessions of a Nazi spy confessions of a Nazi spy is based on a, a true story of a group of uh, of a German spy network that the FBI basically stumbles upon in uh, early 1938 because the, the Nazis had you know a fairly extensive network uh, uh, run not uh, not only from Germany but with uh, one of their fifth columns here, which is something called the German American Bund, and uh, you know a fairly broad network uh, designed to you know gather intelligence in America and to spread Nazi propaganda. And uh, it's a famous uh, and it was a court case in the uh, in early 1938. Uh, most of these spies escaped, and and the the case as a criminal matter, really didn't go too far, but it really raised American awareness about Nazi aims and methods. And most importantly, from a production code administration point of view, they come to the conclusion that treating a foreign country fairly, as the code demanded, is not the same thing as treating a foreign country sympathetically. And if a studio could document what it was saying about a foreign country, as you could from the court records of this particular spy case, then the production code could have no objections yeah. under the production code to making a movie like Confessions of a Nazi Spy. And that kind of breaks the logjam. You know, once you can sort of make a film based on court records that's anti-Nazi, then the studios have permission from the production code to do it. And so what from 39 on is when you start getting more and more explicitly anti-Nazi movies, even before America enters the war in 41. Sure, sure. But again, like that clip I tried to play, we have yeah. uh, uh, we have the quote, uh, America not be at w- might not be at war with the Nazis, but the Nazis are at war with us. Right. And there's yeah. it, there's th- there's this sense that this is a very patriotic, you know, pro-American film. And th- again, and you say this time and time again in your book, this seems to be the magic formula connecting anti-Nazi with pro-American is the is the swinging, you know, the home run. Yeah, and and speaking of home runs, that this is in 38-39, and America uh, does not want to enter what's happening in Europe. But people now know on the horizon trouble is a brewing, and you start getting this wa- this resurgent wave of patriotism in America in '38 and '39. Uh, perhaps most famously in November of 1938, the uh, the month of Kristallnacht, when uh, Kate Smith goes on the radio and premieres a song that becomes an immediate sensation called "God Bless America," which later, mm-hmm. of course, becomes the standard uh, competition with the national anthem. And uh, it's also when you start seeing the national anthem being played at movies and at sports events. Uh, so this resurge in American patriotism in 38 and 39, I think, is clearly in direct response to you know, what we see looming on the horizon, even though you know, most Americans don't want to admit that you know, another 25 years, you know, t- yeah. 20 years or so after the last war with the Germans, we're going to get into another war with the Germans. So I, w- I kind of want to ask the big question about just the power of the movies then. I mean, yeah. you know, with all these sort of stumbling blocks from censors to, you know, cautious studio bosses to political uh, issues. I mean, you, you know, you talk about uh, 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 Americans getting their news from the radio, from mm-hmm. the newspapers. I mean, it's not like they'd never heard the word Hitler before. Right. It's right. not like you wouldn't hear about the Nazis. So I guess the, the thing is, is like... So we have this breakthrough in 1939. How how much did it matter? Like, how, what influence did the movies have? Well, I think what the movies do in in 39, particularly during the Second World War, you know, is what what they start is is they link 
anti-Nazism to pro-Americanism. They really explain to America what's bad about the Nazis, you know, the religious and uh, you know, uh, ethnic intolerance, the anti-democratic strain in it. Uh, and they explain that again and again. And basically, we, we start getting it during the Second World War with all those films that are about teamwork and tolerance. You know, the famous Warner Brothers platoon where there's, uh, you know, the Irish guy from Boston, the Jewish guy from Brooklyn, the Italian kid from the North End, right? And they're all working together to make the B-17 fly. And it kind of looks a little corny to us now, but these, these messages really take hold. And after the Second World War is over, uh, we're going to have this great explosion in civil rights. You know, first with films like Gentleman's Agreement, and then later on you're going to have uh, integrationist films, the late 40s and 50s. And basically it helps create this sense of diversity and multiculturalism that we all embrace today as a response to sort of the, you know, the monolithic racism of the Nazis and the Japanese during the Second World War. So I think the movies really do kind of have a, a, a pretty profound impact in transmitting that message in a way that's sort of traumatic and also emotionally persuasive. And that's what, you know, that's what Hollywood propaganda is at its very best and why it's so much better than Nazi propaganda or Soviet propaganda, right? It, uh, it, it doesn't have a guy screaming at you from the screen, but it has uh, you know, Rick and Ilsa on the tarmac at Casablanca. It's just much more emotive. You know, and we've brought up China a few times now, and the other movie I would bring up would be Red Dawn, the remake. So the remake, which was made a few years ago, uh, Uh of course, was the Chinese invading Mm -hmm. America. And the Chinese, uh, uh, echoing what you've just told us, basically said, absolutely not. But not only is this movie not coming out in... uh, uh, China, but for Fox Studios, which owned it, if this movie comes out, I'm not sure how many Fox films are going to be coming out in in right. China. And and you know what? They digitally went back and redid the movie and turned the Chinese into the North Koreans. Uh, well, that's because the North Korean market is negligible, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I mean, I, well, look, speaking of Casablanca, we're all shocked, shocked that uh, business is going on here in, in Hollywood. It, it, you're, you're right, and it's the exact same thing happened in, in the 1930s. Uh, oh. I, I know overseas, uh, Captain America was released as the first Avenger. You know, so, uh. I mean, this is always uh, Of course, and, and we're not at war with China, but I, I'm just very curious about what... You know, talking about the power of movies, like what sort of similarities or what lessons we have, you know, just sort of watching this. Because, yes, they're not roughing up American employees in Beijing. Well, I I think either as a businessman or uh, sort of a a moral filmmaker is that at some point uh, you would hope that you would have the foresight and the morality to say stop. And one of the things when I was going through this book, I was always sort of, it's really easy to look back and, you know, from the perspective of 80 years and to say to uh, Jack Warner or Louis B. Mayer that uh, you, you should have, like, closed up shop immediately and had nothing to do with these people from the get-go. But in 33, 34, 35, uh, especially, it's just, it's just not so clear. Like, uh, yeah. you know, are you going to, like, close down your multi-million dollar business in, in Germany uh, because these guys seem a little eccentric at the moment? Uh, you know, I, I like to think I would have been as moral as Jack Warner and not as immoral as Louis B. Mayer, who MGM basically stays until the guns start firing in uh, in September of 1939. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm not so sure. Like, uh, yeah. you know, you'd like to think you were always going to be farsighted and behave morally. Sure, but, sure. Uh, at the time, it's not as, it, it's not as clear. And some people do, like uh, Jack Warner and Carl Emley, 
I think, are real heroes of, uh, of this story. Uh, some other producers, maybe not so much. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, so I can't thank you enough for, for sticking with us the whole hour. Thomas Dort is the author of Hollywood and Hitler, a new book uh, from Columbia University Press, uh, out now. So thanks hey, again for thanks joining so much. us. It's been my pleasure. Yeah. So thanks again. And uh, let's see, we're almost out of time here. But I do recommend the book, dear listener. Uh, actually found I couldn't put it down. All right. Well, I want to thank Andrea Salenzi for helping me uh, through the technical difficulties of the evening. And once again to uh, Thomas Doherty for sticking with us the whole hour. Stay tuned for Nardwar, who is up next. You're listening to WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WNYX Montgomery, online at WFMU.org, and in Rockland County at 91.9 FM. Coming up next, Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show.
head like my mama never thought I'd be. Like you never thought you'd ever see me. My mama never thought I'd be But you never thought you'd ever see me Baby, please, please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please Oh, oh, oh I want to eat as many of the apples I want to know and then forget everything I want to be like a pile of pebbles Skipping over and into a pond Listening to WFMU, and it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette radio show. You just heard right there from Israel, Danny's Boxo Surprises with Bad. Today on the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show, an interview with from Seattle, Washington, Big Eyes. Coming up right now to prepare you for an interview with Big Eyes, going to play a bunch of tunes. Going to begin with a band from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, The Shivers, and their song, Teen Line. All on the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show on WFMU. Oh yeah, here's The Shivers. (laughs) 